So we're in Matthew 6, as we continue to work our way through the basics. And one of the basics of the Christian life is the whole issue of prayer. Now, this is a very brief prayer that Jesus has given us in Matthew 6. It's a familiar prayer. When you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. It's what we call the Lord's Prayer. It is a, uh, it's a model prayer. It is a, um, it's a brief prayer, interestingly enough. It's not real long. But it's, it's a prayer that gives us a pattern. It's a prayer that gives us uh, a way to approach things. Um, this prayer is comprised of six petitions that we make to our, to our Father. Now, we, we spent a lot of time last week going over this, that when we pray, we, we pray to our Father. Uh, th- this is somewhat of a unique concept that Jesus introduced uh, in the New Testament because well, actually, in this particular passage in Matthew chapter 6, as we pointed out, I believe, last week, between verses uh, uh, 1 and 18 of chapter 6, ten times Jesus refers to, to God as our Father. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we work through these, um, these petitions. There are, there are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Um, You know, it's interesting, when you pray, it, 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 it's important that, that we follow what the Scripture says. Oh, there are a lot of people who pray. I, I made a statement last week, and uh, someone asked me for a clarification, and it, it, was a good, it was a good question. Because I talked about this fact that a lot of people pray. Now, some people pray to Allah. But Allah is not the God of the Bible. Uh, some people pray to the Virgin Mary. And the question I got was, well, are, are you saying that Catholics and Muslims pray to the same God? The answer to that is no, they don't pray to the same God. Absolutely not. Uh, Muslims pray to Allah. Catholics pray to the God of the Bible. But, 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 when a Catholic praise to the Virgin Mary, the question would have to be, why are you praying to the Virgin Mary? It's a legitimate question. Why would you pray to Mary? There's nothing in the Bible that says pray to Mary. Uh, but there's a teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that, well, Mary is co-mediatrix with Christ. She's co-mediator. But again, I would ask, where do you find that in the Bible? 1 Timothy 2.15 says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We get to the Father through Jesus. There's no other way to get to God the Father except through Jesus. There's no other way to be saved except by the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man come to the Father but by me. That's true for salvation and that's true for prayer. Some people pray to saints. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to pray through saints. We are saints. We're called saints. When you read the New Testament scriptures, Paul's always talking to the, to, to the church, to the saints who are at 
Ephesus, to the saints who are at Philippi, to the and he's not talking to dead people who did miracles. He's talking to living people that are flawed and still have a sin nature and are still struggling through life. But we're saints because the holiness of Christ and the righteousness has been transferred to us. Nowhere are we told to pray to a person who, who is dead. We are told to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. We have access to God the Father because of what Jesus did on the cross. So here's Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Now he's going to give six petitions. As we come to the Father and as we approach the Father, six, six headings, six, um, if you would, uh, divisions, if you will. This, um, it's an outline. And you fill, in, you fill it in as you pray. It doesn't have to be by rote. It doesn't have to be by memory. But, but there are principles here. As you pray, what, what, what does Jesus say here? He, he says, pray then in this way. He's not giving us an exhaustive list of this, 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 you know. It's, but when you pray, pray like this. And he's going to give us these headings. Uh, I, I think the best communicators, there's a difference between a communicator and a speaker. A speaker, a lot of speakers, and I'll show you the difference. A lot of speakers are people that write out everything they're going to say word for word. I, I know of a preacher on the West Coast. Yeah, he's, he's no longer alive, but he used to, uh, he would write out his entire 40-minute sermon, and then he would memorize it. And it was by rote. Now, to me, you say, oh, he's a preacher. I know he's a preacher, but he's a speaker. Um, as opposed to a preacher who is a communicator. Uh, uh, the best communicators I've ever heard don't write out every word. But if you can look at what they're working off of, they're working off headings. Just headings. Just headings. Because you see, they've prepared and they've studied. And by the way, the guys who bring it, the guys who are uh, fresh, the guys who are rich, the guys, they study. They study. Uh, we got a guy here that studies. And, and he could be riding on what he's been doing for years and years, but he doesn't. He studies, so it's fresh. Um, so you study, and you study, and you study, and you put it in here, and then when you get up, you got headings to kind of keep you on course. But you see, that's, that's called communication. You're, you're, not, you're not speaking, you're communicating. And as you're communicating, you're also reading. Because, you know, communication is two-way. A communicator speaks from the heart. You've done the preparation, but you're trusting the Lord to use you to communicate. So as you're communicating, going down through your headings, you're also reading people. I was a speech communications major in college for two reasons. Uh, number one, I was interested in it. Number two, it was easy. <laughs> That's pretty much why I did it. And there's no way I was majoring in physics. I mean, I went for speech communications. But I was. I was very interested in it. 
Um, I took a lot of courses in communication. You know what's interesting to me? I never had one course in listening. Every course I had was in speaking. But communication involves somebody speaking and somebody listening. And when you're communicating with your wife or you're communicating with a friend, doesn't it tick you off when you're talking to somebody and they're kind of looking around? It just drives you nuts. But isn't it great when you're talking to somebody and they're listening? And they're listening. You know what? They're listening and they're listening from the heart. You ever had that happen to you? Sure you have. It makes a difference, doesn't it? That's what prayer is. Prayer is communication. And when we are pouring out our hearts to the Lord, he's listening. He's listening. That's a wonderful thing. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And who are you praying to? Praying to the Father. Your Father who art in heaven. So he's a good Father. The Lord is good, and the Lord does good. Do we, do, do we always understand what he does? No. Do things happen to us we think shouldn't happen to us? Yes. Absolutely. And that's, that can really screw us up. Because if God's such a good God, then why would, this, why would he allow that to happen, and why would he allow that to happen? And I think of our buddy Paul Lanier, who's been here every night for seven years, and King and Dave would bring him, and Paul's not here anymore. Because he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. And most of us in here knew Paul, and we knew his story. Medical doctor and a weightlifter, and the guy loved to fly his plane. He loved to hunt and fish and all that good stuff. And we watched him deteriorate before our eyes and left a wife that loved him and three beautiful girls. And then I think of Tom, who's been in our study for a long time. And right in here, we did Tom's memorial service because Tom's on a business trip in West Texas. What, a couple of months ago? And apparently he gets carjacked. And somebody puts a bullet in his head. And it's still not clear what has happened. Well, how do you explain that? What, what do you say about that? I thought God was a good God. I, I, is this a father you can trust? Or, or is that not a father you should run from who would allow that to happen? What do you, what do, you do with that? The Bible tells us that God is never the author of evil, yet evil happens. But, but why didn't, can God stop evil? Can he stop it? Yes, he can. And sometimes he stops evil. Does he always stop evil? No. And our question is, why don't you always stop evil? You remember Joseph and his brothers? They were going to kill him, but they didn't kill him. They sold him into slavery, and years later, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended it for evil. They hated him. You intended it for evil. And they did intend it for evil. Could God have stopped the evil? Yes. Did God stop the evil? No. Now, here's, here's what's difficult. Joseph says later, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, Joseph saw a good outcome. Sometimes we don't see the outcome, and we don't know what God's up to. When I did Tom's funeral, I, I mentioned something I, I, that when I was a little boy, sometimes I'd get so angry at my father for what my dad would do, how he'd, 
he disciplined me or not let me do something, I'd go in the bathroom and I'd cuss my dad out. I did, more than once. And it was a very well-insulated bathroom. <laughs> Believe me. Now, would I ever say that those things to my dad face-to-face? -face? Are you kidding me? No, I wouldn't, because I respected him too much. But I'd get so mad, I'd shut that door, and I'm a little six-year-old kid. He's cussing him right left. You know what's interesting to me? 30 years later, what I was cussing my dad for, I was doing the exact same thing as a father to my kids. And they were as angry with me as I was with them. And you know what's interesting? Down the road, They'll be doing the same thing. Isn't that, isn't that how it works? Do we always understand God? No. Does that mean that because I don't understand him, that he's not good? No. It just means I don't understand. And it's okay not to understand. It's okay not to get it. It's okay to be crushed. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be wounded. It's okay to be angry. Go ahead and tell him you're angry. Go ahead and tell him you're having a hard time because you don't get what he's doing. Go ahead and tell him. It's, it's fine. He knows anyway. Because see, what you're doing is you're communicating honestly from your heart. If you're crushed, tell him you're crushed. We're not playing games here. This, this is real life stuff. There's no dysfunction here. We're, 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 not, we're not having an ice cream social. We're not doing this church thing after acting like everything's good again. Look, sometimes life is brutally hard and it's devastating and you just don't have any answers. So you just say, God, you know, I don't have any answers here. But you've got to be careful because what Satan will do is Satan will take that. And he'll ruin your life, and he'll make you bitter. And he'll take you down a path that'll, that will destroy you. That's what he'll do. That's what he wants to do. Six petitions. I'm going to try and hit three tonight in the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, that makes him different than any other father. Here's the first, here's the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. Now, how many of you guys this week use the word hallowed? What the heck does hallowed mean? What's this hallowed stuff? We don't talk like that. What's the root of that? It's, well, it's, it's the same root as Halloween. Actually, it isn't. I just made that up. <laughs> what does hallowed mean? By the way, you know what? It is the same root as Halloween because it means holy. All hallows day, holiness day. There, there, there's a root to that word. It, it means hallowed be thy name means that your name is holy, and because your name is holy, your name is to be honored. It's to be honored. So when we pray, we pray to our Father who is in heaven. And as we said last week, before you rush into your request, if you just stop for a minute and think about who your Father is, it makes a difference. 
And now he says, may your name be honored. May your name be reverenced. May your name be respected. How many times in a given day do you hear God's name dishonored? How many times do you hear someone say, um, God damn, which is a very serious thing to say. It's extremely serious. What does that mean for God to damn? What does it mean to say to someone, go to hell? That's pretty serious. One of the Ten Commandments is not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Man, we hear that all the time. Something will happen. Um, Oh, the Mavs lost last night. Oh, my God. Hold, Hold on a minute. Why would you say, oh, my God? Well, because I always say it. Maybe you shouldn't always say it. See, if you just flippantly use God's name, I would submit to you, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. If you just flippantly use it as, as a reaction to anything, his name is holy. Oh, my God. Well, you need to think about that. Because his name is above every name. And his name is to be honored, and his name is to be respected. Interesting, isn't it? We're we're just so overrun by it that a lot of times we fall into it and don't even realize what we're saying. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, may your name be honored. Isn't that interesting? So, Because so often what we immediately do is run to our needs and our requests and our difficulties and our burdens. Jesus says, when you pray, begin by praying that God's name would be honored. Now, why would that be? Because when God's name is honored, it puts a difference in everything. Everything's affected when God's name is honored, as opposed to God's name being dishonored. I mentioned last week that uh, uh, the North Carolina Constitution, I quoted last week, has a section in it that if you don't believe in God, this is in the North Carolina Constitution, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in the principles in the Bible, you cannot be elected to office in North Carolina. Now, do they apply that part of the law, you think, in North Carolina? Probably not. And then Roger Adamson sent me a whole thing this week on the different state constitutions and the preambles and their references to God. It's amazing. God used to be honored. Not so much anymore. I mean, you can hear, you can go to church in Chicago and hear, God damn. Right? Okay, I'm feeling better now. That's unbelievable, is it not? That's unbelievable. Okay. We're going to honor his name. That's what we're going to do. We're going to honor his name. Uh, The name of God is important. 
James uh, Boyce in his, man, he was an excellent teacher. Excellent teacher. His commentary on Matthew, he writes these words. What is the name of God we should honor? There are many names for God. He is Elohim, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is El Elyon, the most high God. He is Jehovah, I am who I am, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He always provides. He always provides. He always makes a way. Always. That's what he does. That's an, that's an amazing father. You know, in Matthew 7, Jesus said, if a son says to a father, give me a loaf of bread, his father will not give him a stone, will he? Not if he's a good father. He always gives us what we need. Why? Because he's Jehovah Jireh. Uh, Boyce goes on and says, he is Adonai, the Lord. In this prayer, Jesus introduces God as our Father in heaven. Next paragraph. It is, nearly, it is a nearly unbelievable privilege for us to call God Father. Before the coming of Jesus Christ, this was an unknown name in most prayers. Pagans did not pray this way. Even in the Old Testament, the word Father appears in reference to God only 14 times. And never once does any individual Israelite address God directly as my Father. It would have been considered much too intimate. In fact, the Jews of Jesus' day did not even like to use the name God. They spoke of heaven or the Most High or merely Lord instead. All this was completely overturned by Jesus. Jesus always referred to God as his Father. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, he authorizes his followers to do the same. The name, may your name be honored. Why do we honor God's name? Because, because of what the name represents. How many of you guys bank at the first bank of the mafioso? I don't see a lot of hands. If you're going to start a bank, even if you're funded by the mafia, that probably wouldn't want to be the name you'd want to put on the bank. Because you see, a name means something. A name stands for something. You see, a name, we don't do this as much anymore, but names used to be very, very significant. Because a name represented something about that person. In fact, you have situations in the Old Testament where someone's name would be changed because God changed what was going on in their life. Isn't that interesting? My, my, uh, my, my wife, uh, Mary, when, when our daughter Rachel was born, we, uh, you know, friends, are, we're all excited. Everyone's, you know, this is wonderful. And one day we got a gift in the mail, and it was a little um, uh, from a friend, and it was just a, a, a neat little lamb, a little wind-up lamb, and it played a little song, you know, it was for little Rachel. And we turned that thing on, and, you know, and it starts playing this little tune, cute little lamb, and, and the song was, Mary had a little lamb. The word Rachel in Hebrew means little lamb. And I didn't get it. I mean, I'm just, I said, oh, Mary said, look at this, Steve. And I go, yeah, that's nice. And she goes, no, 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 no. Listen to the song. And I said, what do you mean listen? I know the song. What is this, American Idol? I know the song. <laughs> and she goes, Steve, listen to the song. I said, okay, okay, okay. 
in my gracious, loving, Christian way. I said, okay, gosh, get off my case here, you know. She said, just listen. I'm listening. Go, Mary had, wait, wait a minute. Mary had, Rachel was our little lamb, and my Mary had a little lamb. See, a name means something. Did you guys just get that? Okay, it is significant. You don't look real bright to me tonight. I just wanted to make sure you got it. You look like I did when I heard it the first time. Um, Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. Look at this. Psalm 9, verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. Why is that? Well, if you know the name of God, and God has many names, if you know, if you know that his name means that he is the creator, created you, created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the worlds into existence. If, if you know in Genesis 1, it says, and, and God said, and God said, and God created, and he spoke it into existence. And then you keep reading down Genesis 1, and it's God, you know, and it's, it's singular. And then you get down, and it says, and God said, let us make man in our own image. You go, what, what, what do you mean, what, let us? What's this us thing? Well, that's because our God you see, is, uh, is the three in one. It's called the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Let us. It's in the very first chapter of the Bible. Let us. Do you know that Jesus is the creator? All things were created by him. Jesus is the creator. There's a Father, there's Son, and there's Holy Spirit. What we've got in Matthew 6 is that we've got the Son telling us how to pray to the Father. And by the way, do we always know how to pray to the Father? Do we always know what to say? Do we always say the right thing? No. That's why it says in Romans 8, we don't know how to pray as we should. Sometimes, sometimes we think we know how we should pray. But other times, we know we don't know how to pray. Don't let me forget Romans 8, okay? But I'm thinking of that uh, song written by that great theologian, Garth Brooks. And, you, and if you know Garth Brooks, you know this song. And the song is a story about a guy who had a girl in high school he loved and wanted to marry and all that, and he didn't marry her. He goes back to his high school reunion, and he shows up. And uh, he shows up with his wife, who has since who he's since divorced and married Tricia Yearwood, but that's another story. He he writes this song. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers, because what he was praying in high school is that he could marry this girl, but he's grateful that he didn't marry the girl. Now we could all say that. We can all look back over our lives and say, God, thank you for not answering that prayer. Sometimes we pray something and God doesn't give us the response that we want. Sometimes we don't even know how to pray. Romans 8, in fact, why don't you flip over there with me. Romans 8, is it 26? I think it is. It's in there somewhere. I'll find it. I'm having a rough time today finding my passages. Yeah, it's 26. 
In the same way, the Spirit, so you got the Father, you got the Son, watch this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. What, you, know, you know what's amazing to me? Is that, is that the Spirit of God prays for me. He prays for me when I don't know how to pray, when I'm praying wrong. He's praying for me. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he lives forever to make intercession for us. So I've got the Spirit of God praying for me. When I'm in a jam, when I'm in a fix, when I'm crushed, when I'm hurting, when I'm confused, the Holy Spirit of God prays for me. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus prays for me. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he lives forever to make intercession for us. That's an amazing thing. Now, what does it say back in, in, in Psalm chapter 9? Those who know thy name put their trust in thee. Why? Because, you see, if you know his name, that he's the creator. If you know his name, that he's the sustainer. That he's the provider. That he is your sovereign keeper. If you know that he is the defense of your life. If you know that, you see, what we're talking about here is the character of God. The names of God represent his character. And when you understand his character, that this God I'm praying to, this is my father, this is his character, you know what? I can trust him. I can trust him when my life has fallen apart. I can trust him when I am absolutely confused. I can, I can trust him when I'm absolutely bulldozed. I don't understand everything that happens, but I can trust him. Sometimes it's a battle to trust him. Because sometimes we don't get it. But see, that's where you live off. That's where you live off. Not how your feet, not how you feel. Not how you feel. Paul said, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, You remember our affliction in Asia, brethren. When we were, flip over there with me. I've got to show you this. 2 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says this. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Well, what was the affliction? We don't know. But I tell you what, it was pretty heavy affliction because look what he says. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came, the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, watch this, beyond our strength. That's what you call a burden. You know how we so flippantly say to people, God will give, never give you more than you can handle? Well, if I'm not mistaken, Paul just said God gave him more than he could handle. Right? But when, God, when you're at a point where God gives you more than you can handle, you know what God does? He'll give you strength to handle it. As thy days, so shall your strength be. He's excessively burdened. He's never been this burdened before in his whole life. It's an affliction that he's never experienced. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Watch this. You know, I love this guy, and I'll tell you what, I love the Word of God because it's so honest. 
This guy is so afflicted and this guy is so stressed out, he says this, so that we despaired even of life. I didn't even want to keep living. That's how bad it is. Where I am, my circumstances, it's so bad. It, it's, it's crushed me. It's killed me. It's destroyed me. My hope, my... You know, I, I just, I don't want to live anymore. You, you know, I got to tell you something. I'm really glad he, he said that. Because... I'll be honest with you, I think every guy in here at some point is going to feel that way about where you are in life. Now, are we always there? No. But at some point you will be there. What's interesting in verse 9, he says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, Now watch this, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's that's kind of strange, isn't it? See, when these circumstances hit us in life and absolutely devastate us and destroy us, and and, why? Why? Well, Paul says, so that I wouldn't trust in myself. Well, I don't think I'm trusting. See, sometimes you don't always get it. And you don't always understand it. But, but here's the point he's making. He said, God wants me to trust in him who raises the dead. Well, God, if, if, if you want me to trust in you, don't let this bad stuff happen to me. Because, see, when the bad stuff happens to me that ruins me and kills me, see, that makes me not to want to trust you. Exactly. But that's when we need to trust him. When our lives are dead and our hopes are dead and our our goals and our plans for life and our plans for our family, when they all get killed, we trust in the God who brings life out of death. And you say, how can that be? I don't get that. Of course we don't get it at the moment, but that's who he is. That's who he is. He's the God who brings life out of death. And we say, well, there's no hope. There's no, I know. I know, but that's who he is, that we might trust in him. See, that's the kind of God he is. He's the God who brings good out of evil. But see, that's where the enemy comes in and says, you can't, hey, you don't want to trust this God. You want to run from this God. This God is bad news. He betrayed you. Whew, there's a lot at stake when these things happen. There's a lot at stake. And one of the things, I remember when, doing Tom Hickman's funeral here. You know, here's a guy that loved the Lord and a great husband, great father, and we're all sitting here asking, well, why would God allow this guy to be murdered in West Texas? I mean, we got questions. And you know what? I think we got some pretty legitimate questions. But you know, I'll tell you something. Tom doesn't have any questions. All of Tom's questions have been answered. Because he's in the presence of Christ. We're the one with questions. That's where we trust. That's where we trust. In the name. In the name which represents his character. I'm not saying this stuff's easy. 
I'm just saying it's the only bedrock you've got when life falls apart. That's why we reverence his name. The name. See, this is the God you pray to when there's nowhere else to go. And there's no one else to go to. I've got to watch my time here. Hallowed be thy name, that his name might be honored, it might be reverenced. In uh, Dinesh D'Souza's book, What's So Great About Christianity, he's got a section in here, and, and in this book he's responding to the recent uh, plethora of atheistic books, thanks Lou, that, uh, that are preaching the popular idea that there is no God. And he's getting to the real root of what these atheists really believe and what they're really teaching. Let me give you a couple quotes here. He writes, some atheists even acknowledge that they would prefer a universe in which there were no God, no immortal soul, and no afterlife. Nietzsche writes that if one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in him. On the possibility of life after death, H.L. Mencken wrote, my private inclination is to hope that it is not so. In God, the failed hypothesis, physicist Victor Stinger confesses that not only does he disbelieve in God, he doesn't like the Christian God. He says, if he does exist, I personally want nothing to do with him. And philosopher Thomas Nagel recently confessed to a fear of religion itself. As he puts it, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. You see what these guys are doing? They're dishonoring the name. They're spitting on the name. They're spitting on the person behind the name. I'd read the whole chapter to you. But I won't. I love this. D'Souza says, It's time to look more honestly and critically at the real motives behind modern atheism. Uh, these are often different and more interesting than the surface, surface motives usually given by or ascribed to atheist figures. It is widely believed, for example, that Darwin lost his faith when he discovered that natural selection, not God, was responsible for the evolution of life forms. But Darwin himself says he lost his faith because he could not endure the Christian notion of eternal damnation. Couldn't handle it, what God says about those who don't receive him. D'Souza says, we also learn from his writings that Darwin suffered terribly from the loss of his 10-year-old daughter, Annie. One gets the powerful sense that he could not forgive God. Atheism, in some cases, is a form of revenge. Now, isn't that interesting? A 10-year-old daughter that died, and it broke his heart. Of course it would break his heart. Of course it would crush him. But instead of reacting like Paul did and trusting in the God 
who brings good out of evil. He runs from the God and indicts the God and cannot forgive the God who allowed such a thing to happen. You see how serious this is? One more. I, I, I had that book here one night by Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great. That's a name that's not, that it, that's not hallow the name of God. It doesn't hallow the person of God. There are a lot of people trying really hard to get their kids in the top-notch colleges and universities. And they're willing to spend all kinds of money. So their kids can go there and sit under teachers that don't honor God's name. Somebody, somebody help me with that. I mean, I'm not telling you what you ought to do. But I think you need help. If you haven't thought it through. And there may be a reason, a good reason, but it needs to be thought through. Uh, one more. From Darwin's own day, many people were drawn to his ideas, not merely because they were well-supported, because they're not, by the way, but also because they could be interpreted to undermine the traditional understanding of God. As biologist Julian Huxley, the grandson of Darwin's friend and ally, Thomas Henry Huxley, put it, catch this quote, the sense of spiritual relief which comes from rejecting the idea of God as a supernatural being is enormous. Really. And from Julian's brother, Aldous Huxley, also a noted atheist, we have this revealing admission. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was liberation from a certain system of morality we, object, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Thanks for being honest. One of the characters in Milton's book, Paradise Lost, Billy Al. Basically made the comment, same comment, in different words. D'Souza says, if God does not exist... The Seven deadly sins are not terrors to be overcome, but temptations to be enjoyed. That's at the heart of a lot of atheism, which is a refusal to acknowledge the name and acknowledge the person behind the name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy name be honored. Thy name be reverenced. Are we not blessed men that we, can, that we know him and we know his name? And when you know his name, you can trust him because of his character. No matter what you're facing, you trust him. He's your father. We have guys in here that in years past, you had things you'd never thought. You never thought you'd survive. You never thought you, there was any way you'd get through it. You never thought there was any way you would heal up, that you would repair. And you know what? Look what God's done. Second petition. Your kingdom come. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Let me give you another quote from Boyce. What does it mean when it says, thy kingdom come? He says, it has to do with God's reign or rule, which in one sense involves God's sovereign ordering of all things at all times, but in another sense concerns his, his, direct, his direction of the lives of his people. Here, the prayer is for God's rule in two senses. First, may you rule increasingly in the lives of your people. And second, may your final messianic kingdom come soon. Jesus is king of kings. Thy kingdom come. There, there, there will be a day when he will reign and rule. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new Jerusalem that's going to come down. Uh, the earth will be restored to what it was before sin came into the world. Be astonishing. What, what's interesting, though, uh, the good news, the good news of the gospel is that, is that although we are apart from God because of our sins, that Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, and by his own death, died in our place as our substitute and paid for our sins. That's an astonishing thing. And when Christ comes into our lives, he changes our lives and he changes our hearts and he gives us eternal life. And one of the things that happens is he not only justifies us from our sin, but now he has a purpose for our lives and he's going to lead us through life. He becomes our, he becomes our king. He becomes our master. He becomes our Lord. That's why we pray, Lord, make me the kind of man that you want me to be. That's why Paul says that let him who steals steal no longer because it used to be that... It used to be that we were the kings of our lives. But when Christ comes in, we get off the throne and we say, Jesus, would you be seated and would you teach me how to live? He becomes our king. There's a great passage. You know, a lot of times we, I think we look around our nation and we get discouraged because uh, I don't get the sense things are getting better and better, do you? You probably don't either. That can be a little discouraging. Um, Flip over to Colossians, if you would. Colossians 1. Um, I'll just dive into the middle of the sentence in verse 5. He says, uh, actually 4, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, listen to this, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing in you since also the day you heard of it and, and understood the grace of God and truth. The gospel is always growing. The gospel is always increasing. The kingdom is always growing. The kingdom is always increasing. Always. And, and sometimes we forget that. Sometimes it seems like that's not true. It seems like things are getting worse and worse, but things are not getting worse and worse. Woodrow Crowell, in his little book, um, tells this story. There's a story about an agnostic university professor visiting the island of Fiji. When he met a local chief, he bemoaned the fact that missionaries had come to the island. When the professor met the local chief, he bemoaned the fact that missionaries had come to the island, duped the Fiji people into believing the Bible and converting them to Christianity. Surprised, the old chief said, you see that huge rock over there? On that rock, our ancestors would crush the heads of our enemies. 
And you see that big oven beside the rock? In that oven, we would bake the bodies of our enemies before we ate them. You should be thankful for the Bible. If it weren't for that book, you'd be my lunch. (laughs) Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. See, his kingdom came into the lives of these people. Therefore, they don't eat professors from universities. I guess that's a good thing. (laughs) You know what's wild is that the kingdom is growing. Now, one day Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom. But you know what? There's a lot of stuff happening right now that's kind of amazing. Joel Rosenberg sends out uh, an email called Flash Traffic. This is what he sent out on Easter. If you've read any of his stuff, he writes good stuff. He says, despite unprecedented press coverage of Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Middle East since September 11, 2001, one big story is generally not being told by the mainstream media. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims are converting to evangelical Christianity and will be celebrating their first Easter this year, even amidst widespread persecution and the very real threat of death. This whole email is astonishing. I first began reporting this story in 2005 after interviewing some three dozen Arab and Iranian pastors and evangelical Christian leaders in the U.S. and the Middle East. He starts giving uh, proof. He says, consider the latest evidence, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, for example, there were only 17 known evangelical Christians in the country before al-Qaeda attacked the United States. How long ago was that? About seven years. Today, there are well over 10,000 Afghan followers of Jesus Christ. And the number is growing steadily. Church leaders say Afghan Muslims are open to hearing the gospel message like never before. Dozens of baptisms occur every week. People are snatching up Bibles and other Christian books as fast as they can be printed or brought into the country. Uh, He talks about Uzbekistan. Uh, There were no known Muslim converts converts to Christ in 1990. Now there are more than 30,000. Iraq, as I shared on Fox and Friends on Easter morning in Iraq, there were only a handful of Muslim converts to Christianity back in 1979 when Saddam Hussein took full control of that country. Today, there are more than 70,000 Iraqi Muslim background believers in Jesus. They call them MBBs. Muslim background believers in Jesus. 70,000. Egypt. More than a million Egyptians have trusted Christ over the last decade or so, report Egyptian church leaders. The Egyptian Bible Society Society told me they used to sell about 3,000 copies of the Jesus film every year in the early 1990s. But in 2005, they sold 600,000 copies plus 750,000 copies of the Bible on tape in Arabic and about a half million copies of the Arabic New Testament. Egyptians are increasingly hungry for God's word, an Egyptian Christian leader told me. Last Christmas, I had the privilege, Rosenberg says, of visiting the largest Christian congregation in the Middle East, which meets in an enormous cave on the outskirts of Cairo. Some 10,000 believers worship there every weekend. A prayer conference led uh, by the church in May 2005 drew 20,000 former Muslim believers in Christ. In December 2001, this is in Sudan, Sheikh Ahmed 
al-Qahtani, a leading Saudi cleric, 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 appeared on a live interview on Al Jazeera satellite television to confirm that sure enough, Muslims were turning to Jesus in alarming numbers. This is a Muslim cleric. Here's what he said. In every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. He warned. Every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity. Stunned, my interviewer interrupted the cleric. Hold on, hold on, let me clarify. Do we have 6 million converting from Islam to Christianity? Al-Qahtani repeated his assertion. Every year, every year, the cleric confirmed, adding, a tragedy has happened. Six million Muslims a year are turning to Christ in the Middle East. It's against the law to preach the gospel in the Middle East. You can't take Bibles into the Middle East. So how is this happening? Listen to this. This will blow some of you guys right out of the water because it doesn't fit your theological grid. I'll be honest with you, it didn't fit mine. Listen to this. One of the most dramatic developments is that many Muslims throughout the Middle East and even in the United States are seeing dreams and visions of Jesus. Now, wait a minute. You're getting me nervous here. They are coming into churches explaining that they have already converted and now need a a Bible and guidance on how to follow Jesus. How do people come to Christ where there's no missionary and there's no Bible? I got to tell you, this this kind of stretches me a little bit. <laughs> um, the first time I heard of this was about seven years ago. You guys familiar with Brother Andrew, God Smuggler? He was a guy that smug- would smuggle all the Bibles into the communist countries when you couldn't take Bibles in, and he would load his car up with Bibles and have them, you know, hidden in the door panels and all that. And before he'd go into East Germany and to the border crossing, he would say, Lord, in your New Testament, you would record your miracles where you would open the eyes of blind men so they could see. I pray as I go through this border crossing that you will close the eyes of men who can see so they will not see these Bibles. He'd go right in. He'd go right in. For the last seven, eight, ten years, you know where he's been working? In the Middle East. And, and you know what's happening? You know what's happening is this is what's happening. And, and it's really kind of interesting. Because what does this say? Thy kingdom come? In Revelation chapter 1, we know that one day his kingdom is coming. And in Revelation chapter 1, this is really something. In Revelation chapter 1, John's on the Isle of Patmos... And, and the revelation is being given to him. And then he says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death 
and of Hades. There are all kinds of stories that are happening in Muslim countries that are closed to the gospel and where you can't have a Bible. And I, I've heard many stories. One that comes to my mind was a, a group of believers met underground and they were copying Bibles. And a man comes to this obscure house, no sign, it's underground. They're, they're, they're trying to not be killed. And a man shows up at the house one day, knocks on the door, and they open the door, and he says, I've come for my book. They say, you come for your book? And he said, yes. What, what book? He said, the, he told me to come for the book. And they said, who told you? And he said, he appeared to me in a dream. Who appeared to you in a dream? Well, I don't know his name. You don't know his name, but he, I don't know his name. Well, what did he look like? And you know the description he gave? Right exactly out of Revelation. The guy began to say, well, his head and his hair were white like white wool. Uh, his eyes were like fire. And, and, as, and, and as this guy is understanding, he realizes, wait a minute, this guy is describing Jesus out of Revelation. He told me to come here and you would give me his book. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, thy kingdom come the way I think you ought to do it without blowing me away. And I'm comfortable, and I can explain everything. You know, we get uncomfortable, and I do, because a lot of times it's people that I think are a little off balance theologically that get into all this stuff. But when someone describes Jesus as he is in the Word of God, and someone says, I want his book, and they embrace it, and it means they might die, that's the real thing. That's the God we serve. Amazing. How great is our God. Let's pray. We are so grateful that we can pray to you, our Father. Thank you that your kingdom has come into our hearts. There might be uh, some guys here tonight that have never asked you to come into their life. They have never said, Jesus, I, I believe that you're God. I believe you're the creator. I believe that you went to the cross and died for my sin. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And I ask you to come into my life and forgive me of my sin. And put my life back together. And make me the man you want me to be doesn't have to be those exact words, Lord, but it, from the heart, as a man prays that, you'll hear his prayer and give him eternal life. We're so glad, Lord, that you read our hearts. The words don't have to be perfect. It's just what's in our heart. You're such a good father. We are so privileged to be in your family. We honor you tonight. In Jesus' name.